Welcome to another blog brought to you by Airzelle. I need to remind you you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airzelle are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. My name is Nancy Porter and it's my pleasure to share with you Time Magazine. We'll begin with items from the December 4th, 2023 issue. Uh, this is from the Time 100 Leadership Series. Headline, Rebel with a Cause. Tadashi and I grew up Uniqlo into a global force. Now he's out to fix his country. By Charlie Campbell in Tokyo. The previous evening, storm clouds have cleared to bathe Tokyo in crisp sunshine. Tadashi and I, Japan's richest man and the founder of a $73 billion apparel empire, Uniqlo, is perusing the art books that line his wood-paneled office, which, like most of his firm's cavernous headquarters, commands sweeping vistas of the Sumida River. Finally, he retrieves one book he believes will be of particular interest, a book of historical photographs curated by Time magazine that features John F. Kennedy on the cover in deep conversation with his brother Bobby during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I particularly like his saying, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, says Yanai, age 74, carefully replacing the book in its stand. That's what I want to talk about today. On the face of it, Yanai has many reasons to feel upbeat. Fast Retailing, the holding company that operates Uniqlo and eight other brands he established out of his father's tailoring business, saw operating profits of $2.54 billion for the year to August 31st, up 28.2% year over year. The firm's share price, meanwhile, has soared 31% so far this year, propelling Yanai's personal wealth to $36 billion. He also has bold plans to finally conquer the United States by nearly tripling Uniqlo's existing 72 North American outlets by 2027. The rosy outlook radiates across Japan, where a perennially sluggish economy is now predicted to grow faster than those of the United States and Europe, his bourse riding a three-decade high. Moreover, in response to the Ukraine war, Japan has pushed through transformative increase in defense spending and in May welcomed world leaders for a G7 summit in Hiroshima, galvanizing a resurgent leadership role for the world's number three economy. The alliance between Japan and the United States is unprecedentedly strong and deep, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida told Time in late April. Yet Yanai is not buying his nation's new swagger. Instead, it's time for some home truths, he says, insisting he wants to deliver a shocking statement to his compatriots. Wake up, he says squarely. Japan is not an advanced nation at all, because we have been in a dormant state for 30 years. Yanai's sobering pitch is that Japan's economy is teetering on a precipice because of an unhealthy obsession with manufacturing, workers conditioned to corporate bloat, and a budget financed by soaring debt 
rather than tax receipts. In December, Japan's cabinet approved a record $858 billion general account budget for 2023, despite expecting only $493 billion in tax revenue. With plans to issue $250 billion in new government bonds over the same period. Japan's public debt is already 264% of gross domestic product, the highest in the world. And nominal wages, not adjusted for inflation, rose by just 4% from 1990 to 2019 compared with 145% in the United States. Productivity languishes at the bottom of G7 nations. In Beijing and Shanghai, people are getting two and three times the compensation of equivalent positions in Japan, says Yanai. We need to normalize Japan's economy. Yanai is putting his money where his mouth is. And in March, hiked the wages of fast retailing's 8,400 or so employees in Japan by up to 40%. That still is low. It should be much higher, he confesses. He's calling on Japan's government to take similarly proactive measures such as raising interest rates, cutting handouts, and making sweeping regulatory changes to prevent the nation of 125 million from sleepwalking into disaster. Fiscal lethargy is never a good look for a key U.S. ally, but especially not for one in the direct shadow of China, which Washington has come to regard not only as an economic competitor, but also as a global rival. Still, Yanai's rallying cry shapes with Japanese executives who owe their careers to steadily climbing the corporate ladder. Whether they will buy into this subversive fever is a huge question. Yanai isn't coy about the stakes of his fervor. Unless we tap into the rest of the world and become more active, there will be no future for the Japanese people. Yanai can't help but swim against the tide. He's a vibrant dynamo in a corporate culture famed for gray conformity and happily flaunts his success despite local taboos against ostentatious wealth. He owns two golf courses on Maui alone. Yanai has zero hesitation skewering the political elite when rival CEOs are more concerned by their stock price. The Japanese government and bureaucrats need to have their mindsets challenged, he says because they know nothing. But a man whose 2003 autobiography is titled One Win and Nine Losses can certainly not be accused of arrogance. His bootstraps ascension story has been one of struggles overcome, mistakes owned, and self-doubt always lingering. Hailing from the town of Ubi in Yamaguchi Prefecture, Yanai grew up in the cramped rooms above his parents' shop, which sold off-the-rack suits. He studied political economy at Tokyo's prestigious Waseda University, but graduated without going to any classes, he says, because of a leftist student walkout that lasted for 18 months. 
But the break in studies gave him the opportunity to travel to the United States and United Kingdom, where the proliferation of mid-market clothing shops planted a seed that he would eventually sprout back home. After a brief stint selling men's clothes for a supermarket chain, Yanai was handed the keys to his father's shop in 1972. But within two years, all the staff except one had walked out because of frictions over his management style. The only colleague to remain still works with him. Still, the business grew steadily until, in 1984, Yanai established the first branch of the Unique Clothing Warehouse, later shortened to Uniqlo in central Hiroshima. Uniqlo's early success was rooted in a low price point combined with high quality materials. Yanai doggedly experimented with new fabrics like the popular heat tech range that retains warmth in winter while breathing in sweltering summers. The firm's breakthrough came in 1998 when Yanai opened its first Tokyo outlet. Its debut campaign was a lightweight fleece for just $15, which caused a sensation amid the cost-conscious post-bubble economy. Every fourth Japanese customer bought one. Yanai transformed his family's tiny clothing store into an international phenomenon, with more than 3,500 fast retailing stores across the world including Uniqlo flag shops in London's Covent Garden, Milan's Piazza Corduccio, and Fifth Avenue in New York City. Unico has already overtaken Gap in terms of global reach and is fast hunting down Sweden's H&M and Spain's Zara. My goal is to drive growth wherever possible, insists Yanai. Still, there have been blunders. In 2001, Uniqlo opened 21 stores in the United Kingdom only to shut 16 of them within two years after miserable results. In 2005, Uniqlo opened its first three U.S. stores in New Jersey, but all were closed by the following year. We were nobody, Yanai says. The United States was my biggest failure. Yet he kept striving and evolving. Whereas his first billions were owed to plain, functional, durable clothing at minimal cost, today Uniqlo has moved up the value change. It has designed collaborations with the Museum of Modern Art, the Louvre, and Tate Modern, as well as brand ambassadors including tennis superstar Roger Federer, who in 2018 signed a $30 million per year deal that tripled that of his previous sponsor, Nike. For Yanai, the underlying philosophy is to fail rather than fade. He bears the scars from Ubi, which was a coal mining boomtown until the energy transition caused the pits to close and jobs to move elsewhere. As they did, all the shops that served them also shuttered. It was a grim lesson that every business plan has a shelf life, and those that don't adapt will perish. Yanai's passion for pushing boundaries is embodied by Uniqlo's Tokyo headquarters, which sprawls over the size of a city block, 
with 14-foot-high ceilings, cafes, and hangout spaces. The Research and Development Lab boasts test chambers where new materials are plunged into negative 40 degrees centigrade chills or torrential downpours as the wearer's comfort is monitored via thermal imaging cameras. In the basement are seven dedicated photo and video studios where models parade next season's lines and the color-corrected images are uploaded immediately to the firm's website by technicians perched 10 feet away. There's a library overflowing with design books and a great hall modeled on a sumo stadium whose polished timber bleachers can seat 1,000 people for large presentations. Everything is geared toward collaboration and control. Instead of simply entrusting overseas suppliers to replicate sample garments, Uniqlo maintains at great expense an innovation factory in Tokyo, where at first finesses the entire manufacturing process. As in the above shows, the game is less about athleticism or talent than it is about the soft skills of social engineering, intimidation, duplicity, forging alliances that must eventually be severed. Sure. We now move to the last page of the Time December 14th issue called Questions. This is an interview conducted by Angelina Jolie with Narges Mohammadi, the Nobel Peace Prize winner tells Angelina Jolie about life in an Iranian prison, the roots of the protest movement, and what gives her hope. Question. When you think of your childhood, is there anything that would help us imagine the life of an Iranian family? Answer. In Iran, family relationships are not only strong among close relatives, but also with the extended family members. My mother's family was politically active and engaged. In the 1979 revolution, a significant portion of my mother's family and some members of my father's family were among those imprisoned and executed. These events directly linked the world of my childhood to the world of struggle and resistance. Question. Are there things about being an Iranian woman that people might not know? Answer. My mother refrained from even wearing black socks, let alone dresses. She wore lively and colorful clothing. The religious government forced us, as children of that happy mother, to wear dark and black overcoats, trousers, and headscarves. The values of Iranian families were different from the values promoted by the government. The history of my land is the tale of the struggles of freedom-seeking and tradition-breaking women, which has continued till the Woman Life Freedom Movement of today. Question. How do you keep your fellow prisoners going in such difficult circumstances? Answer. In total, since 2012, I have been imprisoned alongside more than 800 fellow cellmates. Having a political female prisoner alongside women charged with murder, robbery, and drug trafficking can be quite challenging. From the outside, it even seemed impossible for us to coexist. But life, with all its beauties and nuances, continued inside the walls and bars. Although different political orientations and conflicting ideologies can lead to discord, we, 
by emphasizing our commonalities made life there more vivid. Question. Are you able to speak to your family? Answer. Since the birth of my twins, Allie and Kiana, I have been detained three times. I think suffering my detentions in front of the eyes of my children, enduring solitary cells while not seeing their faces and not hearing their voices, was unbearable beyond any word, logic, or belief. All these years, the dream of freedom and equality in my homeland and the realization of human rights and democracy in my society have given meaning to this suffering for me. Now my dreams are my only point of connection to my little twins, Allie and Kiana. Question. I've been following the tragic story of Armita Gervand, who, like Gina Amini, died after an encounter with the morality police. Response. The pain of this horrific incident was deep and merciless because the government attempted to prevent the disclosure of the truth through deceit, lies, and duplicity. The government's effort to bury the truth is more terrifying and agonizing than its actions to eliminate its opponents and protesters. Question. Do you see any grounds for optimism? Answer. Our struggle to abolish mandatory hijab is a fight against the dictatorship of the religious state, which has now led to the formation of a great and revolutionary movement. In my belief, democracy and human rights are impossible without the realization of women's rights. And it is the realization of women's rights that guarantees democracy. I am very hopeful, and this hope demands more action, effort, and struggle from me and propels me forward. Hope increases my motivation for resistance and fighting on. I know too well that victory is not easy, but it is certain. Last question. Does your Nobel Peace Prize hold any particular meaning to you? Answer. We, the people of Iran, were able to turn our national demand into a rallying cry that became the name of our movement, reciting women, life, freedom from the Nobel Peace Podium is a most potent and meaningful message to the people of Iran that their voice has been heard by the entire world. All right, we move now to the December 25th issue of Life magazine. And... Let's see where we will begin. It is the issue that provides of the year. And to encapsulate, person of the year is Taylor Swift. The athlete of the year is Lionel Messi, the soccer great. And Time CEO of the year is OpenAI leader Sam Altman. Let's move on to our first article in this issue, which is from the world of politics. Headline, 2023, the year in politics. Title, Donald Trump. The GOP frontrunner kept his eyes on the Oval Office, even as the court cases mounted by Brian Bennett. 
Some former presidents retreat to privacy after the pressures of the job. Exhibit A, George Washington. Others find a way to stay in the spotlight. Exhibit B, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter. Then there's Donald Trump, who remained the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination throughout 2023 as his pileup of legal woes led pundits and reporters to wear out the word unprecedented. Before Trump's 91 charges over four indictments, no former U.S. president had ever been indicted even once. The first indictment came in March from New York, tied to his trying to cover up an affair with an adult film actress. Then came federal charges in June over classified documents and charges in August in federal court and in Georgia over his efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss. The cases will shape 2024 campaigns and test the justice and political system unlike anything the country has ever seen. In the meantime, they are playing into Trump's framing of himself as a perpetual victim of political retaliation. The first charges made headlines, but may be hard to prove. The Manhattan District Attorney's case hinges on an untested legal theory that the former president could be charged in New York for falsifying business records to cover up state election law violations and exceeding federal tax contribution limits. Special counsel Jack Smith's cases, by contrast, look serious. He filed the first federal charges against Trump over classified documents he took to his Mar-a-Lago home after the end of his presidency. Smith followed that with charges that Trump conspired to convert American democracy and that the rioters who assaulted police officers and broke into the Capitol on January 6, 2021, were acting at Trump's direction. The attacks were the culmination of Trump's criminal conspiracy to overturn the legitimate results of the presidential election, Smith wrote in recent court filings. Yet the most persistent legal threat Trump faces may be in Georgia, where Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis says Trump was at the center of a broad conspiracy to reverse election results in that state. The case is outside the purview of the federal government, so it will continue even if he's elected president and is able to shut down federal cases against him. The evidence in Georgia seems intuitive. Trump's is on tape asking the Secretary of State to find him votes to win. And several people who were directly in touch with Trump have flipped and are now cooperating with prosecutors. Trump's trials are filling up his 2024 calendar, competing with key moments for his presidential campaign. In January, as the Iowa caucuses kick off, he faces a civil trial over defaming writer E. Jean Carroll, 
a second time when he denied raping her in the 1990s, and a class action lawsuit accusing Trump and his company of a pyramid scheme. In March, Trump's federal trial over January 6th is scheduled to start a day before the Super Tuesday primaries. The New York State hush money case is set to begin later that month, and Trump's classified documents case has court dates scheduled for May. Georgia prosecutors may launch Trump's trial there in early August. Trump's previewed the belligerent tone he is likely to take with his criminal trials when he took the stand in November in a civil fraud trial that threatens to dismantle the Manhattan real estate empire he built his name on. In that case, Trump admitted, under oath, that he had adjusted the valuations of some of his properties and that he was involved in reviewing the Trump Organization's annual reports. But he also had to be repeatedly scolded and reined in by the judge as he ignored questions, made exaggerated claims, and hurled insult at his adversaries, including New York Attorney General Letitia James, whom he called a, quote, political hack, unquote. Trump's strong standing in the Republican Party never wavered as he surrendered in arraignment after arraignment this year. Yet the outcome of those cases could have an outsized impact on the outcome next November. While recent polls show Trump leading Joe Biden in a general election matchup, some also find a significant number of Trump-leaning voters open to backing Biden if Trump is convicted. All that adds up to a major test for American democracy, one that the justice and political systems were not designed to handle. Trump is already telling the country that he will use the Justice Department to punish his political enemies if he returns to the White House. If I happen to be president and I see somebody who is doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them, Trump recently told Univision. By charging him in court, Trump said, they've released the genie out of the box. Next headline, title, Joe Biden. The White House struggled with public opinion even in its moments of success, and this is by Philip Elliott. If you can put politics aside, Joe Biden had a good year as presidencies go. He held together a global coalition backing Ukraine's deep prints against Russia. His early legislative wins started paying off in jobs and investments in infrastructure and manufacturing. The economy even hummed along, sidestepping a recession many thought were in, was inevitable. Not to mention the government remained open and solvent. No small thing these days. Yet none of that appears to be helping Biden in the polls. He is heading into 2024 with worse polling than any president since Jimmy Carter at this point in his first term. Even George H.W. Bush's job approval in November of 1991 was 20 points better. 
and he went on to lose re-election by a whopping 202 electoral votes. The polling speaks of more than disapproval. With 48% of Democrats believing Biden lacks the stamina to do the job, up from 31% when he ran last time, and 32% saying he does not make them proud as president. And those folks are supposed to be his base. Somehow, Biden remains competitive in head-to-head polling against the Republican front-runner Donald Trump. Democrats may be looking around the corner for someone fresher, or at least not turning 82 just before the next inauguration day, but Biden remains perhaps the most unifying figure on their bench, and a powerful check against a volatile GOP-controlled House struggling to accomplish even basic tasks. Moreover, in the first post-Roe presidential election, Biden's support for abortion rights helps him with voters who ranked that as their top worry. As his re-election bid ramps up in 2024, Biden will face new headwinds. The House's lagging impeachment inquiry is likely to move ahead, with Republicans convinced they'll turn up evidence of foreign bribery. And the legal woes of his son, Hunter, remain vexing, as do third-party challengers who seem to be multiplying. Which is why, in so many in the West Wing, find themselves taking comfort in the old adage, polls don't vote, people do. Sometimes it seems old is what you want. Moving on to the world of medicine. 2023, the year in medicine. This is written by Alice Park. Drugs for obesity, Alzheimer's, and infectious diseases herald in a new era of innovation in the pharmaceutical business. It's been a while since the pharmaceutical industry last saw a year like 2023, when the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, approved a slew of groundbreaking and life-changing medications that represent a surge in innovation and a potential boon to the drug makers' bottom lines. ISI and Biogen kicked off the year with the approval Lecanemab, a trade name Lequembi, for Alzheimer's disease, which is the second medication designed to treat the root causes of the memory-robbing condition but appears to be the most effective. GSK and Pfizer dropped the first ever vaccines for RSV in adults, giving older and pregnant people a way to protect themselves, and in the case of expectant mothers, their newborns as well, from a potentially deadly respiratory disease. Biogen and Sage Therapeutics received approval for a first-ever oral treatment for postpartum depression, Zoranolone, trade name Zerzuve, and the FDA also allowed biotech companies Intelia Therapeutics and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals to start late-stage testing of the first gene-editing treatment using CRISPR technology inside patients. 
and the escalating demand for a new group of weight loss drugs will only continue to explode with the approval of Eli Lilly's trizepatide, trade name Zepbound, which appears to trigger the most weight loss of any medication to date. I'd categorize the past year as a little above average on the innovation cycle, says Damian Conover, director of equity strategy at Morningstar, an equity research firm. While there is no single driver explaining the spate of approvals, many of these drugs represent a continuing trend toward biologic-based medicine, which involves cellular or gene-oriented strategies, like the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, that tend to address the basic mechanisms that cause disease. In comparison, small molecule drugs, the foundation of medicinal chemistry that built the pharmaceutical industry and remains an important platform as well, rely on testing a variety of chemicals to find ones that have the right reaction that can address symptoms or disease. The biologic approach can change a lot of what were lifetime diseases to something that isn't a lifetime disease or isn't even a disease at all, says Dave Ricks, the CEO of Eli Lilly. Even policymakers in the United States have recognized the potential of biologics, incentivizing their development with the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act which gives drug makers more time to maintain their initial prices of biologic-based drugs compared with small molecule-based drugs before they are required to enter price negotiations with Medicare. There's another trend represented by the new drugs, a continued shift toward prevention and getting earlier in the patient experience, says CSK CEO Emma Walmsley, that is a great leap forward. But doing so means that pricing for these drugs needs to transform as well. High upfront and potentially one-time costs are currently a barrier to some patients since insurance companies and employers are reluctant to cover them. That's because for chronic conditions like Alzheimer's or obesity, the current reimbursement system is built on paying for treatments on an episodic rather than single-dose therapy model that could essentially treat the disease and limit additional health care costs. The dynamism of the payment system is still really low, says Ricks. Those problems are as present as ever and seem to be growing with even more pressure to fix payment issues to find a better way to help people afford care that saves the system money and is deemed fair to society and creates enough incentive for innovator companies that create new breakthroughs to want to do it again. The next article is from the world of relationships. 2023, the year in relationships. Plumbing the mystery of why some fan-favorite couples called it quits after decades is written by Belinda Lascombe. The conventional view of marriage 
holds that its satisfaction levels are U-shaped. There's a hyped-up romantic part at the start, and then a decline as people come to terms with the fact that life with another person is only sometimes an escalator to the upper reaches of happiness, and often more of an Iditarod race to a less hostile locale. And then, slowly, satisfaction returns, either because people have made peace with their lot or because they have negotiated their way to a more perfect union. But if 2023's catalog of prominent marital events suggests anything, it's that a long marriage is not always a forever marriage, especially if it's between two famous driven people. This year saw some noseworthy clear-cutting in the old-growth forest of celebrity as unions often crashed to earth. In September, Hugh Jackson and Deborah Lee Furness, one of VIP coupledom's sturdiest trees, announced they were separating after 27 years. In October, Jada Pinkett Smith revealed that she and Will Smith had been separated for seven years, a full quarter of their marriage. Then, Meryl Streep's PR person let it drop that Streep and her husband, the sculptor Don Goomer, married for 45 years, had been living apart for six years. And let's not forget that 2023 was when Kellyanne and George Conway called it quits after more than two decades, though what shocked most people was actually how long they had lasted. Leaving a spouse after a quarter century seems like madness to some, like learning Chinese and then moving to Mexico. Other folks see the sense in it. With no more kids to raise, there's less of a joint project. Spouses find it hard to surprise each other, and their stories, habits, and chewing noises can wear thin. And what with delivery apps, Wordle, OnlyFans, long-life light bulbs, home security systems, Medicare, Uber, and so much online content, the benefits of growing old together in many people's judgment do not outweigh the drawbacks. It's also possible to see these sundown splits as a sign of hope. They demonstrate an unwillingness to settle, a refusal to make do with whatever career, health situation, or life partner rolled your way. Exiting a marriage after so many years could be a sign to the great cosmic busboy that no, you are not done yet. Change is still possible. You could manage another course. This has been another theme of 2023. Madonna, 64, is on tour. Barbara Streisand and Martha Stewart, each 81, appeared on magazine covers. Martha Stewart showing off a rack of the non-culinary kind. Annette Benning, 65, is in a biopic about Diana Nyad, 
who swam 110 miles to Miami from Cuba at age 64. And the golden bachelor about a widower looking for a new spouse in his 70s was a ratings success. The elders are not going quietly. They're raging against the dying of their cultural force and their romantic dreams. The search for new love is an eternally compelling fantasy. But as the Golden Bachelor, Jerry Turner, discovered, even when candidates are deposited at your doorstep, finding a new mate can be a nightmare. Turning over a new leaf with someone whose flaws you know will probably not lead to a dazzling springtime of new experiences. But there's something to be said for a spectacular autumn. So it may be time to send positive thoughts the way of your favorite celebrity couple. How are Kyra Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon doing? Anyone heard from Angela Bassett and Courtney B. Vance? Could someone send Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks a Groupon for a date night? If 2023 is any guide, you can never be too careful. Moving on to the world of climate. 2023, the year in climate. For the young plaintiffs in a landmark environmental case, victory was a great first step. And this was written by Ninas Twamasi, a kid reporter at Time Magazine for Kids. In 2020, 16 plaintiffs, ages 5 to 22, took the state of Montana to court for, they said, violating their right to a clean environment, which is enshrined in the state's constitution. This year, after a protracted court fight, they won. On August 14th, in a decision that the state attorney general has appealed, a judge ruled that Montana must consider the effects of climate change when deciding whether to begin or renew fossil fuel projects. Held versus the state of Montana is a first-of-its-kind case, but given a rising generation of young activists who know the power of speaking their minds, it is unlikely to be the last. Who better to interview young climate activists about that victory than a young journalist? Ninis Tumasi, a 13-year-old kid reporter for Time Magazine for Kids, is based in New York City. He spoke with two of the plaintiffs, Sariel Sandoval, now 20, and a student at the University of California, Berkeley, and Claire Vlasis, also 20, who is studying at Claremont McKenna College and finishing up a semester abroad in New Zealand. Here are some excerpts from their interviews time. Why did you decide to participate in this trial? Vlasa's response, I care a lot about the land and my home state and want to do everything I can to protect it. I was 16 or 17 when I joined the lawsuit. I couldn't vote yet. Yet I know there are three branches of government for a reason. I had tried helping with climate legislation but it was never very successful. So working through the courts just made sense to me. Sandoval's response. 
I felt like it was a good opportunity to be a voice for my people and my tribe. I am an enrolled member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. I'm also Navajo. We are located on the Flathead Reservation, which is in western Montana. I also thought it was a good opportunity to hold the state of Montana accountable for its actions and what it's doing not just to my people, but everyone in Montana. It is our entire future, you know. Question. How long have you been working on environmental causes? Vlass's answer. I grew up on a small farm in Montana, helping grow vegetables, raising livestock, and stuff like that. So I've cared a lot about the land since I was little. But I really got into environmental work in middle school. In seventh grade, I raised about $120,000 for solar panels on my school. From there, a lot of doors opened up for me in the environmental community. Sandoval's response. I've always been passionate and outspoken, but I hadn't done any formal environmental work. Then there's this case. I was asked to join in January 2020, so we're now going on four years. Question. Were you worried people wouldn't take you seriously because of your age? Sandoval's response. There were some of those kinds of doubts, but with all the other plaintiffs and our stories, it felt like they couldn't really not listen to us. I feel like we demanded their attention. And the response from Blass is, I agree with Sariel. We did demand their attention. Just because we're younger doesn't mean our rights are any less valuable than someone else's. I think perhaps they are even more important since we bring in a fresh perspective. Question. What was going through your mind during the trial? Blasses. It was difficult to listen to all of the experts talking about how climate change is going to impact my home state. Seeing the data and evidence presented in real time was eye-opening. And then to hear the stories of my fellow plaintiffs alongside it, my friends are going through a lot of challenges because of climate change. It was inspiring to hear them talk about what's happened and how they're taking action. But it was sad that it even happened and is still happening. Sandoval's response. Hearing my peers talk about their experience, you feel their emotion. The state of Montana hadn't really done anything in terms of protecting our rights. And this is the consequence. Question. Which story stuck out to you? Sandoval answers. One that stood out to me was Olivia Vesovich's. She brought her art, a mermaid tail stuffed with plastic bags. It was a very impact impactful piece. Vlasa's response. Ricky Held, talking about her land and her cattle being affected by climate change. Stories from Lander and Badge Boos about their ability to hunt and fish and do regular Montana activities. Yours, Sariel. Your story definitely got me. What about it got you? Vlasis says, 
She is a powerful speaker. She talked about how climate change impacts her and her indigenous community. It's not something I have experienced, so it means even more. She told a story about how her tribe has a big ceremony when the first snow falls. It was tied with expert testimony showing that snow might not fall in that area in the coming years. If snow doesn't fall, they can't have their ceremony. It takes away an entire aspect of their culture. Question. During the case, was there ever a time when you felt hopeless? Sandoval's reply. I don't think I ever felt hopeless. I had enough support from the team and from other plaintiffs, and also within my own community. Lass's response. It was scary to be in the courtroom and a little nerve-wracking to hear the other side present arguments. But I just kept believing that what I said and what the other plaintiffs had to say was the truth. The truth wins, I guess, when it comes to our justice system. At least that's how it's supposed to be. Question. How did you feel when you found out that you had won? Sandoval. I felt super happy. I don't know how to put it in any other words. It was a great day that day. Blass's response. The decision validated the whole experience. It felt like the court said we hear you and we're going to do something about it. Question. The Attorney General's office appealed the result. What are your thoughts? Sandoval. Well, it was kind of expected. Glasses. I agree. It wasn't that surprising. I think it's just the way the legal system works. It's kind of a bummer that they're continuing to use taxpayer dollars to fight a losing battle about the rights of children. But such is life. Hopefully, the Montana Supreme Court will further validate and make even stronger the decision we have already. And the final question, what impact do you hope this trial will have on the next generation? Sandoval, this is only the first step, right? It's going to take a lot more action to really address climate change in the way it needs to be addressed. But it's a great first step, Blasses says. As a young person who cares about the land and the environment, it can awful feel, often feel disheartening when people talk about climate change. It feels like a big, impending doom, and it's hard to feel like the power to make a difference is in our hands. But I hope that this decision and this case proves otherwise. Hopefully, it's a guide or an inspiration for younger generations to take action just like we did. And at that point, we will conclude our coverage of Time Magazine. I need to remind you again that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, I'm Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.